You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah. We, learned, we learned a couple of uh, Dewey Lipa songs last year. Isn't it Dewey? Dewey. Dewey Louie and Dewey Lipa. I like this mountain Dewey Lipa. No, you need, you need, it's like Dewey Leaf. You need to do a piece of art that's Dewey Lipa. A Dewey Lipa. Hello, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza, here as always with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. And this week we have a Lost Symphony episode. So if you're not familiar, we are in the band Lost Symphony, and we invited our drummer, Paul Lorenzo, to hang out with us. Uh, so this should be, a, should be a good time. Yeah, it was nice to catch up with him. And if you haven't listened, you can go back and listen to part one and part two with Paul. We did a while back to get some more background on his uh, upbringing in music, but we got a little bit more topical in, uh, in these episodes. So it was really nice to have him back and kind of dig deeper. Paul's hilarious. I mean, Paul's so ridiculously talented between like, if you haven't listened to his drumming on Lost Symphony, I mean, this is not just a self plug, but like I genuinely just, I'm a fan of his drumming, but to go hear how he kind of puts it all together, it makes it so much cooler to go back and listen. And he does all the art for all of this show, nevertheless being an incredible artist in life. But if you've seen any of the art and the tunes, he's drawn that that picture of the dude that you're looking at right now, that's actually him, a self-portrait. Well, not right, not right this second, but but prior soon, but but soon coming up after this thing that's going to happen right now on 2020, part one with Paul Lorenzo. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman. I'm here with my cohorts, my compatriots, the people that I have dragged through the internet connection to hang out with you and me simultaneously, Siobhan Cronin and Corey Peza. Hey, guys. Hey, how's it, how's it going, Ben? We had a bit of a morning, <laughs> well, didn't we? Not, not quite as awesome of a morning as Corey, but before we get into that, I want to get into something a lot more positive. One of the greatest drummers on the planet, one of the greatest artists Clearly the funniest dude on the planet. He could tell you his favorite Paul Stanley banter for, and what fucking show it came from for Kiss. And not only that, he's got about 74 drum sets. He uh, makes puns regularly. Don't confuse him with a banker. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Lorenzo! That's so, not Zoe, not Cho, Lorenco, it's Paul Lorenzo. Because <laughs> he says, so what, right? So what? Yes. <laughs> Paul, Paul, this is a show for audio. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Not just video. <laughs> Should probably mention well, he's also a member of uh, our sponsor, Lost Symphony. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'll Bloodline say- Theory. Yeah. A great band. But he is actually, for those that don't know, we are in a band called Lost Symphony, lostsymphony.com. We did just record a new song, and it features some absolutely mind-boggling drums from uh, Paul Lorenzo. I know because Shannon Larkin sat with me listening to it for the first time with Paul, and his mind actually was blown. 
I mean, it could have helped that he had some mushrooms in his system, but still. <laughs> no, but I'll say, I'll, yeah. I'll jump in. Well, two things. First of all, after being in a band with you for so many years, I met you for the first time in person just a couple weeks ago when we recorded this song. And you're like the picture of Dorian Gray. It's like there's a there's a, a painting aging somewhere and you're getting younger as time goes on. Like all of us are looking old and withered. And it's like, Paul, you look great. Like skin is glowing. So what are your secrets for maybe the women listeners? What can we learn from you, Paul? I have nothing to attribute it to because I don't eat well and I don't sleep a lot. And I don't, the only things I do is I stay out of the sun and I don't really drink alcohol. Aside from that, I am. Maybe it's just that simple. Just avoid the outside world and don't drink. Good genes, music, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Avoid social interactions. Don't drink and, you know, stay inside. <laughs> well, but here's another important thing, Paul. Haven't you been barely working since the dawn of time? Because like, I feel like every time I talk to you, you're like, you're working less than you were. So like, where most people are like, I worked 87 hours this week at Target. You're like, no, I actually worked less hours this week. Yeah, well, I, I did work 40 hours for like 20 years or whatever. And then the pandemic happened. And then I had to go back to work in like 60 hours a week. And then I decided, fuck this. I'm going to work as little as I possibly can to survive. Because. So you're saying you worked more hours during the pandemic than before? Yeah, yeah, because all my gigs dried up. So I ended up having to go back to right. my old job as well as staying at my new job. So I was working like eight hours at one job and then another like three hours at the other job and then going home and passing out and waking up and doing it again for like weeks on end. And the thing I love about Paul the absolute most is that, dude, you are like, so I'll just bring it to a moment. So this is what I love most is that Paul is the example of your brain stopped caring about certain things at certain times. And I think John Garabedian, one of our past guests says it's like 20 years old. After 20, you stop fucking caring. And so like with Paul, it's like, I think I said like, oh no, uh, you know, like draw the line was the last Aerosmith record he liked. He's like, no, I liked, uh, what did you like? Uh, Done with mirrors or something. But he's like so before my time, but then I got him with Shannon Larkin, who's one of my favorite people. And when they started talking back and forth to see them like, oh, yeah, no, I liked I loved that Kiss record, The Elder. Like that was so misunderstood. But then like Judas Priest, oh, I, I didn't like that. You guys were going back and forth. And it was like it was like seeing two Starbucks across the street from each other. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just very selective about what I like. That's all. I'm, it's not that I really hate everything. It's, it's just I'm very picky. <laughs> OK, what about like most things? It just seems like I hate most things. Well, let me ask you of, of like currently active drummers or maybe some new drummers that are coming out. Who are some of your favorite players right now? And like, you know, the, let's say the active rock scene, people that are out playing shows and festivals. Is there anyone that you enjoy listening to? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, of course, our buddies, Shannon and Dave Abraziz are awesome. But I know Dave hasn't really been doing a lot of gigging lately. And uh I don't know. Uh, new bands, new music. Hmm. It's tough. I don't know. I, I watch a lot of like drum videos on YouTube and stuff of different guys. So talk about that. I was going to say, you've shown me endless amounts of crazy YouTube stuff. So why don't you explain like the stuff you've subjected me to? Um, well, I mean, I love, uh, what's his name? Uh, shit. Hold on. I think, uh, what's the fucking guy's name? Name of the band is Paris Monster. Josh Dion. Josh Dion. Yeah, he, uh, he sings and plays keys at the same time and plays drums and 
basically creates a whole song out of one person. It's incredible to watch. He's got a great voice and awesome like keyboard player just with one hand while he's playing drums with the left hand and it's crazy to watch. I'm uh, not sure I've ever seen that combo of keys and drums at the same time. That sounds tricky. Yeah, it's really cool. He's in a band called Paris Monster, which is him and a bass player and the bass player plays crazy shit through pedals and he does the keyboard thing and sings and plays and it's awesome. Siobhan's clearly not following you on Facebook because I've seen you play keyboards and drums at the same time in post video. I am following so, you, although I don't so know that maybe, I saw maybe that should one. Pay more, maybe you should pay more attention, Javon. Yeah. Hey, you're not obligated. No obligation. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's amazing. You like I think especially during the pandemic, you were doing a lot of videos, like entire covers, which was amazing. I mean, it's you're really understated in your talents because you play everything. You're singing, playing guitar, playing drums. I mean, I can't yeah. do anything on guitar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I just kind of always wanted to play everything. And unfortunately, I only got as far as like guitar, bass, drums, and then barely being able to play piano, like keyboards. I always say I can fool people who don't play into thinking that I know how to play. That's about as the level that I'm at. <laughs> well, that's the key to success, probably, really is, <laughs> for <yeah>. most of us. <laughs> I know how to not hit too many bad notes <laughs> when I'm fiddling around. <laughs> You and uh, you and Ben have been working on uh, some projects recently, right? Some of your original music. Yeah. Yep. I've uh, been working on some of my stuff. Uh, I have a million songs that I wrote, like just instrumentally, uh, mainly guitar and drums, and then I just kind of put a bass line as a space saver, sort of, unless I come up with something I like. But well, we we need to talk about how monumental this is because so when I first met Paul, he used to bring me drums and and and. I think even one of the first practices like in 2012 or uh, I mean, or 15 or something, he hands me like a jump drive with like maybe 15 years of demos. And they're all like, just like 2003 demo, 2004 demo. And they're like 40 songs at each one. And they're all labeled with like different titles. And we, first off, we've been stealing his songs for every band we've been in since then. And I used to always want to change his songs because they're like very ACDC in that they're simple, they just groove, they just rock. But one of the things I've learned and I especially love about Paul's songs, first off, I can go back to those same recordings because I'm a psychopath and still have them archived, like Paul Lorenzo, 2008, and be like, hey man, this song, like, you know, Monday from uh, track number seven, 2005. Can you, uh, can you play that? And he'll go in and he'll just literally like for two minutes, figure out like what BPM it is, play the guitar part perfectly. The first time as a scratch track, go into my studio, play the drums perfectly, then come back and then play the drums of the guitar. Not once, not twice, but three times like middle left and right. Perfectly, perfectly. So like where Paul, is not necessarily a Jeff Loomis or a Marty Friedman. He stays in his lane better than any human being ever because his guitar parts, and Corey can attest to this, he, we've worked with all kinds of incredible guitarists. We're like, how did they how did they fuck up that part? Or how loose? Literally, Paul is so tight that he gets like overtones, and but he'll tell you he can't even make a bar chord properly. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah, I think that comes from, you know, being a drummer, I'm guessing. Having that sense of rhythm is is something that not every guitarist takes the time to develop. And I think it makes all the difference in uh, your ability to perform consistently. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, you know, there's different types of guitar players, of course. There's like virtuoso lead players, which I can never do that sort of stuff. And then there's just people that like write 
songs and have a million songs as riff guys, you know, I try to, you know, just whatever comes to me comes to me. And, you know, I never took any lessons or anything, so I don't have any sort of like theory background to base anything on. It's just basically whatever. That probably helps you. <laughs> a theory, I think, has hindered most of my ability well, to you know, write it's, anything. It's funny you say that because Paul, I, I'm going I'm to interrupt that in the sense that Paul just did a song where I did a bass line. And I'm like, why does this sound so weird? Because he's technically playing in a different key. He's not playing the one because he's harping on the wrong chord, but it made this really interesting tension. But you, if I go play back Paul's tunes, I have to call a go back and be like, okay, so so you know you're playing the five here. You really want me to play the one the second time, but I like the tension you created. And he'll be like, okay. And he'll have no idea what I'm talking about, but I have to like reverse engineer his stuff. But it's beautifully simple, but when he kind of messes up by music theory stuff it ends up being these super cool things that like Siobhan you would have never done it anyway but like it now sounds awesome and you'd be like that's amazing because Paul just goes oh that's where my fingers went I don't know that's just that's just how I did the riff it's awesome it sounded right yeah if it sounds good it is good it's the uh, no that's I'm I'm always fascinated by that because like uh, yesterday we were uh, in the car we were in the Ozarks after a show and or before a show actually and uh, Corn came on the radio and I was listening and I'm like I can't believe how every single song of theirs it's so crazy to me like but it sounds so cool like mixing of major and minor and all this stuff that my brain wants to analyze but I'm just thinking where did all this come from but it's the coolest sounding shit because it's just like completely unexpected and probably against the rules by all standards of music theory but amazing so that's really interesting to me. Yeah, it's like take the rule book and throw it away. But unfortunately, I never learned the rule book. So, I don't. <laughs> yeah. so you just skip that whole step. <laughs> well, you also, though, hold on, you're a huge Beatles fan. Like, I mean, like a fucking psycho level Beatles fan. So don't you think the fact that you listen to like the Beatles and ACDC and Queen and all that growing up, that that was kind of your music education? Because when I go back and listen to your songs, I literally think like ACDC with way fucking more groove because you groove super, super hard. But like that didn't come from nothing, dude. Like, can you talk to us about like what your upbringing was like because i know that <laughs> knowing you that your your dad your whole growing up situation was very rock and roll so do you think that that's a huge part of it maybe oh yeah sure definitely i mean i was i was definitely immersed in music from day one my dad uh, was a guitar player and singer and wrote his own songs and had a band and all that and um you know i was just always around it and he was always playing stuff for me and giving me records and you know some of the first records I had were like Kiss and uh, the Ramones and uh, Frank Zappa. Hot Rats was one of the first records. I- Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah, Mothers of Invention. Yeah, see, Paul's the only one that like probably got that. Frank Zappa and the Mothers, they burned the <laughs> yeah. place to the ground. <laughs> Smoke on the water, yeah, deep purple. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was definitely, you know, around it my whole life and just kind of, picked up the guitars that were around and sat on my dad's drummer's drum kit and annoyed the shit out of him during band break, you know? Um, and I know Victor Wooten for one says like the way you learn how to speak is, can be the way that you learn how to play music where it's like, there's not necessarily somebody sitting you down and saying, these are all the words and you just start saying them and then you figure out what it is along the way, kind of more of a natural way of learning. Um, so I guess that's kind of the way I learned a lot of any sort of theory or just being able to hear what notes, you know, harmonies and stuff like that. Like listening to the Beatles since I was, you know, three years old or yeah. whatever. No, 
That, that's those are great inspirations and so i'm curious to ask about um songwriting so as a drummer if you're envisioning a song which clearly you love to write songs you've had so many ideas how does it normally start for you is it does it start with a rhythm or since you do play so many instruments does it start with a chord progression like how do you usually start nine times out of ten i start with the guitar i just kind of fiddle around until i find either a riff riff or a chord progression that i like and then I just kind of sit it down. I used to flesh them out a lot more before I tried to come up with any sort of vocal melody or anything. But now what I do is as soon as I get. Try to play the guitar over the top of it and play a lead line. Try to find something that's singable and repetitive enough to where it sounds like a vocal line. And then try to fit words over that and do the gibberish thing where you, you know, just say nonsense. So it never mm-hmm. starts with the lyrics first. No, no, it's never like, oh, I'm going to write this kind of song or anything like that. It's just I sit down and I start playing. And I'm like, oh, you know, do, do, do. Oh, that's kind of cool. And then it just kind of goes down that road. It's it's the same way that I draw, too. When I sit down and draw nine times out of ten, I don't have anything in my head. I just sit down and start. Well, that's like a psychiatrist nightmare because or a wet dream, actually, because if you go and look and, and, and I, I encourage people. So Paul does the most insane artwork. And the funny part is like all of all of our friends and everyone in the music industry that we know loves his stuff. But like he'll claim forever that like nothing means anything. But like, let me give you an example. So I have pictures of his all around my studio and it's like, what does this mean? You have to go onto your YouTube. Like, what does this mean? This is like, it's like a guy holding two snakes. Like, what is this, Paul? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Some sort of, <laughs> some kind of kung fu master or something with a third eye. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like everything, everything that he does, it's like it's got like these weird. Okay, I got one that's way even. It's better as far as there's clearly a meaning to this that that even though you may not have said so, like. Here's Santa Claus, right? <laughs> Holding a spare change cup. Is that not a political statement from the from your from your subconscious, Paul? I mean, it's it's possible that I was, uh, you know, trying to find money to buy Christmas presents at the time. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe find paper from your bank. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's incredible to me. I, I last when I was in Boston last, Ben gave me a piece of your artwork that I have now in my apartment where it's a. Uh, kind of a little demon looking guy with uh, an owl that looks like a robot almost with like a gas mask on it's so cool it's like kind of apocalyptic yeah (laughs) such an interesting aesthetic when you do um some of your like the tunes you do for the show uh and you and you're like creating these these versions and caricatures of our guests uh what are you looking at to kind of make at paulified um well, I usually, I just kind of usually Google the people and I, I look at a, as many pictures of them as I can and I just kind of mash up maybe a piece from this, a piece from that. And then I just kind of start, you know, start making shapes and seeing, you know, what, what works best for them. And then I try to make it as much look like them as I can, try to grab a couple of aspects. Facially, that's always the biggest challenge for me is trying to make it look like them. Yeah, which is amazing because it's, you know, in your style of art, it it does take out. So, you know, a lot of times they have like the holes for the eyes or whatever. So it's but it's always amazing to me how you capture the spirit of the person you there. And and I'm wondering, like, what is it like? Is there a particular feature that kind of makes someone recognizable in cartoon form? Is it 
Is it like the eyes, how they turn? Is it the mouth? Like, is there something that like you feel people are drawn to that makes them connect to that character? I don't know. I don't know. It's tough to say. I mean, I know like on The Simpsons, they have to deal with the same thing where it's like they get to draw this person, but it's going to look like they're on The Simpsons. So mm-hmm. it's going to balance the two. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of happens, I guess. I don't really have any like way that I go about it necessarily, if, aside from just trying to make it look as much like them as I can while still, you know, making it look like a cartoon. I've, didn't, you used to, didn't you used to say you couldn't draw like things in reality very well? Because yeah. I remember you complaining about that, but then like you've drawn every tune for our show. And I've got to say, like, I wouldn't call them I mean, photorealistic, but they definitely have photo- the. Uh- <laughs> you nail, you nail, like, there's a few of them that, like, you know, that maybe, okay, like, it's a little bit, uh, you know, vague or whatever, but, like, some of these and most of them, you just nail these people. Like, you embody something of theirs. Like, I have a Steve Stevens one on my wall. I mean, the ray gun helps, but, like, it's so Steve Stevens, dude. Yeah, you, know? you don't I mean, even need like, to know who it is to, to recognize it. It's immediately like, that's recognizable. Billy Idol's dude. Thanks. Sometimes I worry because, you know, I draw so many of them. I'm like, dude, geez, I don't know. You know, did these all look the same? I mean, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying as best as I can to capture it. And I, I try to look back at the last couple of ones that I did so it doesn't look like, you know, the same sort of thing. Because, you know, I do a lot of kind of similar, like I do the, the figure with the background. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I'm like, oh, did I, did I do like, you know, a circle behind them for like the last five or something like that? Well, that's important. Do you feel like crippling self-doubt is a, is a good motivator? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Ask Siobhan. She'll tell you. It makes better output. <laughs> well, cause it's just really interesting because I was, I was saying this to somebody the, you know, the other day. They're like, tag your favorite drummers. And like all three like, of my favorite drummers, Shannon Larkin, David Abruziz, and, and Paul, you guys don't like have egos. Like, I mean, you're like you... You're like the dude that like comes out, plays it perfectly. You're like, are you sure? <laughs> You're like Jimmy Bell. Jimmy Bell, who's an amazing guitarist from Autograph, is the same thing. He'll shred with for us all day. Corey and I will literally be looking at each other like, why did we even bother starting to play music when this dude exists <laughs> on this planet? And he'll be like, do you, Betty, do you need me to come back another day? <laughs> I feel like it, Paul doesn't even bother saying that anymore. He's just kind of like, well, it is what it is, and like walks away. Like That's how little you even want to know. It seems. If you don't like it, you'll make me come back. It wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Not my fault or anything, but, you know. (laughs) Well, well, coming back to recording songs, let me ask you, when are you going to release some of this stuff that you've you've worked on over all these years? And why haven't you released any of it yet? God knows. I don't know. Uh, I've just been working on it forever. Like, I've never really gotten a version that was totally mixed and all the vocals were all set and everything i probably have like enough songs for a full record with uh vocals and stuff that i could lay down but it's just a matter of getting them down and mixing them and you know i have old versions that do have the vocals and i think they're mostly fleshed out but they're not mixed and they were recorded so long ago god knows if the tracks sound good or not what the hell are you guys waiting for you're over there like every week <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I, I think Paul and I have actually come to the agreement at this point that that we judge you more by the songs you don't release than by the songs you do release. It's like Prince and Van Halen. Like everyone yeah. says Prince's best records are all You guys unreleased. are just like Prince and Van Halen. <laughs> well, you know what? See, you wouldn't know because you don't know what my hard drive sounds like. And you might not until we're both dead. 
But that, but I know that we record because it's one of those things where, like, I feel like it keeps our brain fresh. And we've been working with Hector, who's you know the new bass player slash guitarist, Hector Hellion, uh, for Lost Symphony, who's an absolute fucking freak of nature. And it's one of those things where everything's been kind of coming together naturally. And it's one of those days, like Paul said last time he came on, like songs, songs. Well. I, I feel like there's going to be one of those days that someone comes up to us and goes, hey, we're doing a movie. We need some songs. And Paul and I go, oh, we got some stuff for you. And then when they say they don't like that, we go, well, we have some more stuff for you. So I feel like now it's getting to a point where we finally, at least me, I finally got to a point in life where I feel like someone's going to ask me. Whereas like before I just made them for me, but I'm like, now I make them for me, but knowing that someone might ask me, so we'll try to get it as good as possible. Because we did release a song. We were actually in a movie with a band called 22 Kilohertz <laughs> for a Christmas movie. And we released it because basically someone said, hey, we need a song. So we took, again, one of the songs that Paul and I were probably just fucking around with and said, let's just put this in this movie. So when we're for push comes to shove, we will release stuff. Lost Symphony we released. True. We release stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, funny stories. The songs "The World Is Over" and "Take Another Piece." Take Another Piece is our single with Nuno Betancourt and Marty Friedman and Richard uh, Richard Shaw and Alex Skolnick. Paul recorded that song 15 years ago with me with vocals. It's been done for that long, and we just we're like when we decided to do some more tunes last minute we're like oh hey Paul do you, you think we should just do that song I was like, haven't I heard this one before I'm like yeah when we actually went to a studio and paid a lot of money to record it 15 years ago so like that's the truth man like I, even the song No Exit off um, off of uh, Lost Symphony at, at chapter 2 I think it is yeah. um, was written in 1998 so like Paul and I are both examples of people that will pull out songs like here's one that's 21 years old. Do you want to use this one? And it sounds like it's today. Well, let me ask you this, Paul. So in that situation, you know, redoing a song that you did in a previous version, how how did you reimagine the drums or the rhythm? Obviously, a lot of the Lost Symphony songs are more extended form. They're longer. But um you know, when you're coming back to a song so much later and it's a different format, like how do you rethink the drums and how much of it kind of stays the same? Um, a lot of the time I just kind of like do whatever fits the section for like reimagining like Lost Symphony stuff, stuff that's, uh, you know, me and Benny worked on before. Uh, I go by what he tells me he wants a lot or Corey sometimes when we get to record drums together. I let them kind of guide me through it a lot when there's the long arrangements and stuff. I. You know, if it's not something that I'm working on in a room with a bunch of people for like months on end, re rehearsing like arrangements and stuff, a lot of it mm -hmm. is, like, you know, we come in and like, okay, this is going to be this section that goes through this. And, you know, they lay it out for me and I kind of, I kind of just wing it, you know, so to speak in the, you know, idea that my fills and everything aren't necessarily worked out. It's just kind of like off the top of my head. And then we do a bunch of takes and pick the best ones and, you know. That's the way we do it with those. With my own songs, I pretty much just kind of lay down the guitar to a click track, and then I sit behind the drums, and I, I really don't remember what I played on some of them that were recorded like 12 years ago. So I just kind of go with whatever feels natural at the time, which is kind of what I did at that time too. So it would actually be interesting to sit down and listen to the two versions and hear how different the drums are. I know the guitar are pretty much the same. 
Well, that's yeah, one no, thing and that... Oh, go ahead, Ben. Sorry. I was say, that's one thing that's really... It's kind of freakish that I love about Paul is... I know with his band Bloodline Theory, they have like a thousand songs and they all go through them a million times and all of that. But I... What I've... And I know he composes parts and all of that in that band. But every single thing that we do, Paul just goes in there and it's just like, if we have to do a chunk that's a minute long, or even sometimes it's the whole song or, you know, two minutes, whatever... He kind of just listens to it. He kind of gets it. And then it's like, you know, if, the, if you're going like on, on a trail through the woods where you, you don't, you've never been there before, but then like by the fourth or fifth time, you're like, I know where to go in the dark. That's what it sounds like when Paul's playing drums. And he just hears these little nuances. And even with like Lost Symphony, one of the reasons I love his drums is that I feel like, and maybe this is because I saw Get Back and I finally understood how awesome Ringo um, is, is like he plays musically to everything that's going on his own songs lost symphony that every single thing it's like okay so there's a thing here and i need to lock in with that or i need to do a syncopation with that or i need to it's always how can he uplift the song like especially with a lot of like metal drummers and all that they're they're just trying to think about how fast they can play their double bass or put this in or what blast beat paul's literally always listening with a musical mind because i think you know he plays uh, guitar or or bass and even as a guitarist one of the things i love about his guitar playing which is really important is because he he doesn't do like bar chords or this or that he does these open chord phrasings and some of them are kind of like ugly in some cases because it's like that was easier for his hands but because he does them so open and so consistent like his tone is brilliant because when you're playing chug 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 it's hard way harder to get a tone than if you just strum a beautiful g in perfect tune and paul does it and he does it so consistently that you can again double triple quadruple his guitars and even though maybe you think that chords a basic chord or you don't it sounds perfect his tone's perfect and he stays in his lane, which is what I think is so important for all musicians to take from this, is just play what you can play. And if you can't be Jeff Loomis, don't fucking try. Yeah, I think the moral of this episode is that if we're going to kiss your ass for a couple hours, you're going to have to start <laughs> releasing some of your music so people can actually check it out. I know the world is waiting for it. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> well, how about this new Lost Symphony song? This is going to be coming out. Like, maybe we should talk about how awesome this is. It's the first time that Siobhan also is going to be um, a, technically a co-writer on a tune because she like uh, we have two new cellists in the band, uh, Marco and Susanna, who she's touring with right now in Starset. And uh, do you want to talk about this new song a little bit, Siobhan? Because I mean. Paul is on it, and we are going to release it, so they can look forward to that, the the three people listening and my mom and Matt LaPierre. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And one thing I was going to say that's kind of unique about Lost Symphony is that I love is a lot of the songs start with drums very early on, and that actually influenced me a lot in going through and coming up with a lot of the orchestrations, the way that you hear meter in different sections and the, the accents. It's like totally different from what I probably would have done. And so it was really cool. Like, I remember there was a part that was felt like it was sort of in 6-4, but you played a 4-4 four, four beat. And it had this really cool polyrhythm thing going on that then helped me Poly to kind of craft. Polyrhythm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like a hemiola, to use a classical term. But, um, yeah, that, it was really, really inspiring to have that as part of the template I to like start Al-Hemiola. With. <laughs> but that's even going back to some previous songs that we've done, like when we did Decomposing Composers on Chapter 3. You know, we reimagined one of the um, movements from Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and 
the original version has a totally different feel and so much of that came from the drums because I actually played a lot I mean the violin part is almost exactly the same but everything around it made it completely different which is what was cool and that uh, most of that really started with the rhythm again coming up with different feels for the meter changing everything is you know it really really influences the progression of the song well that was important Siobhan as far as writing this new tune because I first off we want uh, the People, if you haven't listened to uh, Lost Symphony, we are a symphonic kind of, you know, shred heavy metal band, but like bombastic, almost Broadway, like a lot of piano. Uh, um, but we've always written where the guitars have come first um, and then like the strings and all that have come separately. But this time, all I wanted to do was write like the piano, the the, the basic piano, um, kind of the melodies, um, get the bass down, at least the basic bass, if you will, and Paul's drums. So when I sent out the the 10-minute demo of it or whatever, it was just like really, really loose structure with these insane drums. Paul has no idea what he's doing other than like, dude, go. Go crazy here. <laughs> do this thing. And he plays it perfectly, but, you know, he doesn't have any idea of what it sounds like until we sit down next to Shannon Larkin, and he's like, oh, okay, because he's just we have like this beautiful relationship where I can just kind of yell at him and say, here's a minute of a, of a song. This is what I want out of you. And know that Paul's going to give me the genius and then later give it to Corey. He can cut it all together. Except this Paul time, Corey was there the entire time yeah. doing the, recording the drums while you were wandering around on your phone somewhere. Yeah. Well, because I was trying to be a real producer. Like Rick Rubin's my hero. In fact, if I could only order food and then do nothing else, that would be great. No. Did you read about Rick Rubin on the new Blacks on the Black Sabbath record where like Geezer Butler said I don't know what he actually did on our record? I saw that. Yeah. I, I, that that guy's my hero. He's like literally like now Slipknot came out and said the same thing. Like all he wanted to do was like sing Kumbaya. Like he doesn't he doesn't actually produce. So I'm like, dude, that's what I want to do is become like the Grammy Award winning producer of the year that literally does nothing. <laughs> get to get it if you can get it. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, the the specifically on that song though, you know, I remember as usual and kind of the way that the reason that Lost Symphony has, I think, a pretty distinctive rhythm section is because of the methodology of just kind of coming in, listening to these very sparse open arrangements, and then trying to figure out, okay, what the hell could happen here? And uh, what I love about tracking with you, Paul, is like we've kind of talked about, you come at it from almost multiple different angles every take you know especially the first passes every other bar it's almost like you're trying something different that works and then to be sitting behind the you know the in the control room there and go that right there that's the, that is the b and then then you're able to take that and turn it into an entire section um that has a feel that none of us here would ever even think of but uh you know the the, the fun part is picking out like those sweet spots and then building sections and dynamics around them um and i know that's just something that throughout all three records we've done so far has been a huge part of why lost symphony i don't think sounds like any other band because it's not written from that like you know if it was you know ben and brian sitting in in the control room doing all this stuff and then them saying all right this is how the drums are going to go here you go paul um you know take it and and do this exactly as is it would not have the uh the depth of like you know feel and dynamic shift that we do end up with that i think then cascades up everyone else like siobhan's said building upon those like unique perspectives of rhythm just make it not sound like anything else that that's out there right now 
Well, it's, it's the controlled chaos. You know, if it's yeah. overarranged, it, it loses some of that magic of the unpredictability of knowing what you're going to be dealt in the next rendition, you know? Semi-organized so that, chaos. Semi-organized <laughs> chaos. I wouldn't that, give us much credit to say it's organized. But. <laughs> yes, definitely the, the different approaches, you know, coming together to make something that's, you know, greater than either one approach is on its own. You know what I mean? You get the best of both Wait, for both. Well, you it's know. also it's it's like I feel like if you give someone like a director, like you'd say, "Hey, do my video," but let them like run free with it. Like I never come in and, and try to tell you as a stupid guitar player how to play drums. I'm just like Paul, just make just come through for me on this, bro. And mm-hmm. the thing is, so we let you run free, but you could hear that in your drumming. It's not like someone came in with superior drummer and said, "Try to imitate this," you know right. what I mean, or try to capture this feel. It's literally just like, "All right, man." Like Siobhan said, there's no accents. I mean, it's like, what's the BPM? Is it 140 or seven or 75? Like I don't know. And you'll just go in there and I'll say, "Go crazy," or or, or do hits here, or both. And we kind of work through it together. And then it's like everyone else's job to reverse engineer it. But that's kind of how a band like ours that's never been in a room together other until recently um, still has a groove is the fact that we're relying on a guy who we kind of didn't contain in any way where we're like try to practice to MIDI drums we're just like we're going to practice to the real drummer that wasn't told to do anything yeah I mean it's, <laughs> it's just an interesting way to approach everything because it's you have this song that is laid out as far as you know this is the structure and then I come in and I just start throwing stuff up on the wall and I'm just like, oh, what about this? I don't know. Hey, this sound good? And then you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, this, this, and this. And then and then everybody else builds on top of that. So it's like those two layers are already from like totally different, coming from different approaches. You know, one is totally improv just off the top of my head. The other is like totally structured and, you know, has all the theory behind it in the world, you know? When you're listening back to stuff like Lost Symphony versus, say, like Bloodline Theory or, or other projects where, uh, you know, you guys are releasing stuff, which is great. Um, but that's something where you guys are actually having band practice. You're on the same room. You're working up parts. Like, uh, how, how do you view those two different styles of composition and and uh, the final results when you do go back and listen to them? Yeah, it's definitely uh, the different animals. But uh, in Bloodline, we do a lot of um, each of us will write a song. And, you know, we all build on it once we bring it to the band, you know, whatever the bass player wants to do, singer wants to do. But uh, we usually go around and, you know, I'll write a song, the guitar player write a song, bass player write a song. And then we all kind of contribute to it and it becomes its own thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely different too because I get to work out a lot of my drum parts and they're probably more like regimented and maybe like, you know, definitely more consistent. As far as, you know, performance, I always say if Lost Symphony performed, I'd probably uh, have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's well, what's great about it. I mean, yeah, no, I was not to, not, yeah, not to interrupt you. I was going to say the same thing. Like part of the magic is that sort of spontaneity of, you know, it happens with me, too, where if I have too many hours to work on something, I overthink it and then just overthink myself into a box and then it's terrible. But then yeah. something that's done totally spontaneously ends up being great, right, you know. Right. But then sometimes you go back and you have to relearn it, and it's like, oh shit. Yeah. Well, we realize we realize that the genius of Paul Lorenzo is is his subconscious because if you look at any of his art, he just sits down and then draws way better stuff than if I sat there fifteen times sketching what would happen. And then it's the same thing with his drums. Like you come in, and, and sometimes like Paul, we we film him always now because he's like, I, I don't know how I'd ever 
do a video for that. Like, I don't know what I did. In fact, there's a lot of times I played him songs and he's like, we did that? Oh, well, that sound that sounds like me. And in fact, there's even songs that we did like 10 years ago and we'll pull it up and we don't even remember doing it. But we're like, wow, a lot of time and effort went into this and this sounds good. So like, that's the thing. It's like, you know, that spontaneity and that subconscious of that dude over there, Paul Lorenzo, is everything. That's why, like with Lost Symphony, it, it was great to hear, like, again, Shannon, when he first got the records, he goes, oh, the breakdowns and those drums, I would need six months of pre-production to like do that and... I'm like, yeah, he like had six minutes and six, I can't say, bon, can I say bong rips on it now? Or am I allowed to, to call you out? Like six bong rips on it. And that was probably the extent of, of Paul's like forethought on any of these records that are absolutely stupendous. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I try. <laughs> were, you, were you hoping for such an uh, ego lift today, Paul? That's usually what I do. I'm like, I gotta try to be stupendous today. <laughs> You put the stupid in stupendous. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, man. what is, um, aside from, you know, the stuff you're working on, you know, doing your original stuff and uh, doing the Lost Symphony stuff, what else are you working on in terms of music right now? Like, what's what's your average kind of week look like? Um, Right now, I've been just kind of like, doing a lot of playing gigs and stuff with the wedding band and uh, playing some club gigs and stuff and, you know, paying them bills. And <laughs> Okay. So, t so tell us what this is like, because I'm, I'm very curious about this. So, you know, I, I DJed out a lot before COVID, but I haven't DJed or, or that much after COVID you play in a, in a wedding band that plays weddings and, and clubs. What's that look like now? Like what's that scene like? And, and as a guy that like, I know that, sometimes playing um, wagon wheel probably loses a little bit of your soul. Like what, what are you thinking when you're up there on stage? I mean, most of the time I, I'm not really concentrating on, you know, too much to be honest with you. I, I just, uh, I'm on autopilot and just having fun playing drums. I mean, if I thought about the songs that I played enough, I would, you know, just drive myself crazy. So the, the the worst part is when you have to listen to a song that you don't like to learn it, you know, over and over again. But once you learn it, it's it's always fun playing the drums, you know what I mean? So it's it beats working, you know. What yeah. was the yeah. song that you hated listening to the most, but like now has turned into like a halfway fun song to play on the drums? Maybe because you because I know as a DJ, there's songs I hated growing up, but because it elicits a response from people, you're like, oh, I guess it's not that bad. Like Blister and the Sun's the worst song ever, but like. A bunch of hippies fuck dance to it every song. time. Now yeah, fuck, that, fuck song. that song. It's definitely one of my worst, least favorite songs, Blister on the Sun. Terrible, awful song all around. Yeah, Laid by James is another yep. one I really can't stand. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there's the songs that you, like Party in the USA is one that I have fun playing, but I hate. Miley Cyrus. And it's so cheesy. I'm just like, oh my God, you know, but people love it. And, and it's got a certain groove to it that when you're playing it, you're like, oh, whatever. And there's uh, the other one that we learned last week was um, Thousand Miles. You know that song? Oh, oh Christine, yeah, yeah. 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 Literally me and on. So, you know, Corey and I have played that song together a thousand times. Or, no, are you sure you're not talking about a thousand years? Because there's oh, thousand, thousand years. years with, a thousand and years. A thousand years. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, okay. Sorry. Well, with, yeah. I was thinking of a thousand. Oh, it's weird. That you, dude, that crossed my wires because last night I was playing that game Heads Up or whatever. And... Yeah. 
I actually it said a thousand miles, and I started doing and and someone started singing Twilight. And we did the exact opposite of what we just did now. <laughs> a thousand before. something. I've definitely yes. shown up at the gig and learned the wrong song. Like, <laughs> they they want to do like Animal, and there's like three songs called Animal, you know? Yeah. So, so you just yep. know Def Leppard. It's, it's yeah. you know, I mean, look, I wore you, the shirt. I would be the one to show up, listen to the Def Leppard song, but there's <laughs> Neon Trees, and there's what, Room 5 or something? Too? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, animals. Animals. Yeah. Rule number I, one, for the artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm not going to sit there and pretend that I don't make most of my income off cover gigs and wedding and corporate events. Uh, and I know you, you kind of mentioned, you know, it's still fun playing drums. I think the key to being able to do that as a, you know, uh, it, it's not my entire career, but it's a pretty good chunk of it. And it, it's finding the fun in it. And it's like, you know, one thing that I do, and, and luckily, you know, the, the people I play with all kind of the same mindset is we take songs that maybe we don't like and we make them into something we like to play. You know, mm -hmm. whether that's making them a little heavier, whether it's making it more interesting musically, whether it's improving, you know, taking parts of it and being like, all right, this is the cool part of the song. Let's get rid of the crappy parts and, and then and making sure because you're really at, at that point, you're an entertainer. You're not trying to be super you're not a tribute band you're not trying to be loyal to you know the, the original songwriters like uh, it's it's more like no you're there to make sure that the people that hired you are happy that the people that you hired to entertain are entertained so i i can totally see you know and you know looking at songs like party in the usa like whatever it's got a sick beat like if you can't find something to enjoy in that and at least you know entertain yourself then you can't really have that job you know if you're and a Miley super cyrus doesn't suck i'll put that out there right. she doesn't that song sucks but like good it made her career so she could go and you know do way cooler things smoke weed quit weed go spread eagle help children it's great <laughs> no, but this is a great perspective. I mean, even coming back to recording, there's like a huge window of opportunity in reimagining, you know, famous songs. Like if you look at all so many Spotify playlists, there are like massive playlists of like chill versions of this pop tune or like a different style of this, you know, famous rock tune. And uh, I mean, I think that's it's it's amazing to have that opportunity both for gigs and for recording. That's a lot of people don't even touch that because everyone thinks they've got to do something original or they have to build this whole thing when there's so much you can do with the music that already exists. Dude, that's like the entire music industry. Hold on. Stop. You look like every song on the radio is like, oh, that's got the notorious B.I.G. on it. That's a Mariah Carey riff. I'm too sexy. What are you fucking talking about? Literally everything that's in the mainstream culture is just a regurgitation or a fucking sequel or a redux. Like, well, right. There's influences, of course. But what I'm saying is that actually as musicians, you don't necessarily have to be an original musician. That's that's the point. You know, well, you that's can, every musician nowadays. Well, no, but I mean, you can actually make a career both live and recording just doing covers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I'd say probably most musicians. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. The unrealistic part yeah. would be like you can make a living doing your own music and writing things that are absolutely enchanting that are just specifically yours. That's the that's the suspension of disbelief going online like Siobhan. You literally just learn acoustic for like four weeks. Axe Brock, right? And just like go and sit in front of your computer. You say Axe Brock. Yeah, Axe Brock. <laughs> and just if you could borrow one of his acoustics, right? And then like play like a Nirvana song and try to do it all serious and have your glasses on and be like really trying <laughs> and, and post it on all the guitar groups and see how many millions of views and how many dudes that say, keep trying. 
You're going to be amazing. Like, your voice is so good. Like, just go see. Go see how hard that is. Okay. Another thing I like about playing in a cover band is that you get to play a lot of different genres of music and stuff. And, you know, you get to dip your toe in the water. I, I never would have learned reggae if not to, you know, have to learn two or three Bob Marley songs and realize that the downbeat is on the three. You know what I mean? Like, stuff like that, you, you know, it gets you good at jumping from one genre to the next you know and i I bet it helps with the songwriting too because the more you know just like anything the more you have in your repertoire the more you have to borrow from for ideas or you know innovative approaches to something you know so that's wait you you he made a really good point i was gonna say so you listen to this is one thing i actually liked about djing because when i was djing i was always like had my hand on the pulse finger on the pulse as far as like what was good cool and tr- i could still understand why people would dance to things that were terrible and wouldn't dance to things that are awesome what point paul did you sit down and you're like learning the bob marley song or whatever and you said oh my god reggae's on the three did that make your whole day back but yeah no definitely that was uh that was a revelation but like like, was it at a gig was it like when you're learning a song what what does reggae's on the on the three mean (laughs) well the downbeat it's like uh one two three four one two three a lot of them the only beat is on the three and that's the no woman no cry beat um you know what's the other one is this love is another one that's just all yeah our three little birds Yep, yep, that one's got that beat. Yeah, most reggae has that beat, unless it's got like one of the other two reggae beats. <laughs> <laughs> I love playing it because it's it's fun and it's different and it swings and you know, and it's cool that I get to play one or two reggae songs out of the night, and, you know, in between Miley Cyrus and you know. Well, let me ask you, you know, going away from the music, let's talk a little bit about the business side because this is interesting for anyone you know that's listening that might want to build something. I mean what goes into creating a wedding band or creating a corporate band? Cause that is a whole industry, right? And there's a massive amount of gigs out there. I even do some of them, you know, and, and of course you've got to have a pretty big repertoire, but you know, how did you go about creating that and putting that together? What was your strategy? So our band, we kind of started out as a bar band. When I joined it, it was just a guitar, bass, drums, singer, uh, bar band. We just played all the local little spots and then the singer left we got another singer, then we got a second singer, so now we have two singers. Uh, we even had a male singer for a little while. Uh, we changed our name, uh, got more of a you know, corporate sounding, something that somebody might want at your wedding, you know what I mean? As opposed to our old name was Crunchy Monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I would have Crunchy Monkey at my wedding. It sounds delicious, but it's not... <laughs> But uh, yeah, so we changed it to Up All Night, which sounds more like, you know. Oh, nice. An event, you know, something fun. Um, and, you know, we just tried to learn some more wedding-centric songs, you know. And of course, every wedding that comes our way, there's always like one or two songs that the bride requests that we end up learning. So we end up learning a ton of songs that we might never even play again. You know, last year we probably learned like six or eight songs that I couldn't play right now. But it's mm-hmm. all because you know you keep your mind fresh and you know you keep those you know synapses firing (laughs) yeah and how did like when you first started how did you go about building the repertoire like where did you draw from to you know figure out like what are the best group of songs to to put together it's kind of like this unspoken list of songs that every fucking band in the world true story and it's got jesse's girl on there and it's got (laughs) best shot on there and it's got don't stop 
Don't stop yeah. believing, babe. Don't stop believing every <laughs> time. It's you know, Mr. Brightside. Twenty-five, Mr. Brightside. Uh, and then there's like you know a couple songs here and there. Like we do a few pop punk songs. So sometimes you know if we were at your wedding and we played like four or five pop punk songs, you know it might be like, like what's my age again? We were a pop punk band, but really we played like you know the same pop punk songs that everybody plays, you know. Um, but you know we we just try to like keep it balanced. We just learned uh, James Brown and and we learned a Bob Marley song. Uh, what else did we learn? The thousand thousand miles. Is that it? White chicks when uh, Terry Crews is a yeah. Terry. <laughs> 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 horrible for me to play that song. I just think of that and I laugh my ass off the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of, uh, you know, and you got to see what the crowd likes too. Like if we play a song a couple times and everybody goes and sits down, nobody dances, you know. That's, What's a song that did that? Uh, I don't even know. I don't know. I mean, in my old band, we used to each pick a song every month, and we would learn five songs every month. And we would pick some more obscure stuff. I remember that I picked a Bjork song. It has a totally different oh. beat. And I was like, dude, people will stay up if they're dancing, you know what I mean? But nope. Everybody went and sat down. We played it like three times. So I was like, that, oh, well. That's the cardinal rule, dude, is that people don't care if they don't know it doesn't matter if you're playing them like fucking the dark side of the moon for the first time they're like oh this is boring get to the fucking chorus dude like you know what i yeah. mean like whereas it's like if you play a dumb like i'm too sad like the new taiga song whatever i don't know drake song i'm too sexy like you know oh, right said for oh it's a drake song ah! and then they freak out even though it's the same thing for four fucking minutes yeah there's a whole um like skill set to performing as an entertainer doing covers and and weddings corporate uh stuff like that and you know i I don't know if there's a book written but there should be because i just the things i've learned over the past 10 years in terms of like you know and and the same thing with the djing you know and then doing those with ben is like you walk into a situation where once again your whole job is just to make sure everyone's having a good time, which is a sick job. That's a really cool job. Um, and if you're are boring and suck, yeah, if you're good and at there's it, crowds that really actually suck that you go, Oh, I played this song. Like, okay, if you go play a song like fireball by Pitbull at a wedding and no one dances. You're like, Oh, you're fucked. Don's a Kadir. Yeah, and that's when you just start. Dance, you're no, fucked. So you, you just go and you start, you go up to the vendors and you go, can I have some whiskey? I'm going to finish off this night and have a good time. Uh, and you play some terrible music and it's fine. But yeah, there's, there's so many, lessons and and like techniques to doing that and uh it being able to <laughs> like actually keep people entertained you stop thinking about necessarily the music itself and like you start thinking more of the show and how to like Absolutely. you know I- interact with people and like have that kind of vibe going and that is a it's not easy and i know because i've been to shows with bands and and musicians that are supposed to be entertaining the crowd and i go (laughs) really like and and you know the and i don't want to go on a huge rant here but you know that that person was cheaper and uh the venue's like well i could save a couple hundred bucks and hire this guy and and then they don't think about the fact that everyone's now not going to come back to that venue because the music was terrible and it just becomes this whole big association thing but there is definitely an entire uh uh, relatively hidden skill set and and industry around the entertainment of doing the covers and the and that kind of uh music as a dj 
you, you know, and Corey's seen me because we used to do DJ tons of gigs together. In fact, Corey's an amazing dancer if you put on the right music. Um, where you go like, that's the song. That's the one. That's the one they're going to come out to. And I remember going to the New England Aquarium, which is a beautiful venue. Although the wine and cheese is always where the penguins are, which sounds great. Other than the penguin shit a lot. And it smells like penguin shit everywhere. So it's like, you know, that's wafting onto your cheese, bro. That said, I remember one time I'm fucking pulling in and the guy said, I was with Donnie Hayes this one night. I think Corey actually had a real gig. um, So he couldn't be with me, but uh, the guy comes up to me. He's like, are you going to play Come On Eileen tonight? Like the guy from the venue. I'm like, why would I play that song? He's like, is that a joke? And I'm like, no, why would I play Come On Eileen? I mean, I'm pretty sure I have that like somewhere on my crazy hard drive, but like no one's ever asked me for that song. He goes, no one's ever asked you for Come On Eileen. Uh, he's like, he's, he thought I was bullshitting him. And, and he goes, just play it tonight. And I, I never knew. I never knew that that song Come On Eileen will literally stop like 80 year old women, like seven year old girls and everyone in between will just be like, ah! and they just run out and they sing every fucking lyric and they go out of their minds. And again, if they don't, it means that the people suck, not you. And that you're just, just going to have a bad night no matter what. So just have fun playing Megadeth. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. You didn't know. Come on, Eileen. No, dude, because I didn't listen to that. So growing up, I listened to Van Halen, Metallica, and Pantera. So like now that I've had to go learn like I'll think you probably won't play bag, uh, yeah. uh, or like Kiss Kiss. You know, like yeah. I didn't know Prince Kiss. I didn't know that song. I didn't I know ninety nine percent of Stevie Wonder songs. My parents played Fiddler on the fucking Roof, guy. Yeah, it's it's you know you never can tell. That's part of it that gets frustrating. That's some- a great song. Yeah. Grew up in the 80s, it's like... Chuck Berry, never can tell. Okay, stop talking, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) There are these songs like, um, you know, like like, uh, Come On Eileen or something like uh, Your Love, you know, that you're like, why is this the song song that still gets a reaction out of everybody? Like there were 10 better songs that came out that year that were just as dancey, more dancey. That song's not even a dance song. It's like a weird rock song. It's... They're kind of sing along type of things. That's that's what it's you know yeah, you know everyone can scream I want and everyone gets it wrong because it goes back and forth and everyone goes ah, your love tonight yeah your love. That's why it's like yeah. five hundred miles where everybody sings the chorus yeah. the first time when it only goes twice. <laughs> like, yeah, but you never know. You know, that's is that the, the Mandela thing. effect for for songs? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> I think you should do a band of just the, the way people actually remember songs versus how they're written. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched some like movie last night. I forgot Moonfall or something, but there's a whole like running joke where uh, the guy keeps singing, I, I miss the rains down in Africa to Toto. He's like, no, yeah. it's I bless the rains down in Africa. He's like, no, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound that's right. One of the songs, that's one of the songs we learned this week. Yeah, it goes over really well. It's it's a good dinner set if you got that one. What other songs are in the set right now that like, what's the height of the set right now that you're playing at wedding gigs? Like, what are people going the most nuts for now? Because I feel like every year there's a different song that you're like, oh, that's the this is the one this year I'm going to have to do. It's what what was the stupid song? Old Town Road last year. I could not fucking believe. Oh, maybe that's five years ago now because of COVID. I don't know when that came out, but whenever it came out, took over the whole fucking DJ thing. And I was literally like, this is the song, but it's the song. What's the song now, Paul? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. You'd probably have to ask a DJ. I feel like with cover bands, it's like, 
if you learn the song that's popular this year, you won't be playing it next year. Like you gotta wait for it to be popular like five years before you're like, okay. Yeah, it has to like soak into the consciousness. It's gotta be like the all time top 40, not just. Okay, people like Treasure by Bruno Mars. Song's probably like almost 10 years old at this point. But yeah. it's still like a newer song, you know what yeah. I mean? What I find with, with with new stuff where you're not sure if it's going to be just hot for a minute or, or longer is that's when you just throw in like a, med- a medley or something. You sing it over the chorus of another song. People go bananas and then you yeah. move on. And then if it sticks around for, you know, another year, then you can add it to the set list. But it's yeah. not always worth it to take the time to learn everything that's on the you know top 10 charts because who remembers what was number one six months ago? Like. We learned we learned a couple of uh, Dewey Lipa songs last year. Isn't it Dewey? Dewey Louie and Dewey Lipa. I like this mountain Dewey Lipa. No, you need you need. It's like Dewey Leaf. You need to do a piece of art that's Dewey Lipa. A Dewey Lipa. <laughs> we learned that uh, Juice song by Lizzo. I don't know. Is that new? I, I think that's a few years old, but that's that's kind of one of the staples now because I, I know that I've done that in, in cover bands and wedding bands before. Yeah, I feel like, like I said, it's got to be like four or five years old to the point where people are like, oh, yeah, we like that song. It's yeah, sunken, staying yeah. power. Yeah, otherwise you end up learning a billion songs and, you know, it just gets frustrating. <laughs> yeah, but well, like, I mean, wedding, I, from my experience playing in wedding bands, it's like it's more nonstop than a regular band gig. Like there is not, and I don't know how it is for you, but I feel like there, yeah, there is no second of breath between anything because you've got to constantly keep the energy going if someone's like emceeing or interacting with people. So you really are, have to have it down to like a are science. Are you kidding? The truth is, it, well, so, and Corey can tell you this, I, I, I used to freak out at people for like 30 seconds walked away from the floor. So like you don't just play a yeah, popular song. You, you'll play Bruno Mars Treasure, but two minutes and ten seconds of Treasure because the whole four minutes of it is too much for people. You gotta slam yeah. it into like you know uh, I want to dance with somebody who loves me, which is maybe one of like seven songs you can play for four minutes and forty seconds and not get everyone upset because that's a song that heaven forbid you cut it off. They're like, but I want to go do the end part, and you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought you had no attention span. That's a five. Five minute song. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of comes back comes yeah, next. It kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier where there's there's like unwritten rules and there's there's very like tried and true techniques to having that job of entertaining a crowd. And it it does come down. Yeah, no dead air. You can't just stop and turn around like, guys, what do you want to play next? Like that you gotta be able to, you know, and, and with you know, some people are, are at least planned enough to kind of have a set list and stuff. What I, what I do when I play with uh, this guy, Adam Hanna, is it's the last chorus of every song. He turns around, goes to everyone, we're doing this next, and then turns back to the mic, and you hope you hear him. Because if you didn't, you just got to look around and go, all right, well, something's going to happen in three, two, one, and you just kind of, but there's no lull. Uh, I'm always that guy that can't understand what the person is saying. Well, you're hitting a, symbols right in front of your head. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. What's on the fucking set list? Well, a lot of a lot of the crowd bullshit. It's like you know what? The crowd doesn't give a fuck. The crowd doesn't care if you see the fucking set list, and then we can go right into the next song because. I feel the keyboard player's pain because he has to change his patches for the song. Yeah. I personally just need to scroll over to the uh, metronome to whatever tempo it is. But that said, if it's some song in set three and I'm on set one, I don't know what the fucking tempo is. 
So now I got to like stop fishing through shit and find the tempo and then scroll over to the tempo. And all this is dead air. All right, like, we need to pick up in our in part two because we're coming to the end of part one. I need pet I peeves. How, pet I, peeves I, with I, Paul. I, That's going to be the uh, Paul's pet peeves. <laughs> Did you guys just notice the crescendo, the natural crescendo of Paul? He went from like quiet, almost saying nothing, to like he he's get he's smiling. He's got spittle on the side of his. Yeah, we're, we're getting him. Why would you change the fucking? Set <laughs> we got him warmed up just in time. Why would you make a set list if you're going to change it? <laughs> All right, and on that, you've been twenty twenty by Paul Lorenzo. <laughs> Subscribe. And if you don't stick fuck around, you. stick around for part two up next. Don't change the set list. Thank you as always for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 123, featuring Ron DeChant of Starset. Check it out. It just there was just so much going on, and I'm like, dude, I've got like 20 days until we hit this start date that I want to, I want to start this tour on this day. And he was like, well, we could do it this day or this day. I'm like, I'm like, I feel really strongly we should start on this day. And it was like a phone conversation after I left the cabin because I was going back and forth between Columbus. I would just go up there for like four days at a time or whatever. And uh, he just texted me. It was a text. He was like, yeah, all right, just go with what you think. And it was the start date of, I don't know, July. It was a day after my brother's wedding, whatever that day that was, like mm-hmm. 18th. And I was like, all right, I have June to plan this entire tour. No agent, nothing. And I'm just like, all right, uh, here we go. And I just put the dates and cities that I thought made sense from the canceled tour that we had in 2020 on a map and just started putting dates together of how I could drive it because I knew how long bus drivers could drive. And then I just cold called 300 places to get 32 dates. And it just was fucking chaos for a month. Hey everyone, it's Chris Pandolfi inviting you to check out the new season of my podcast, Inside the Musician's Brain, with new episodes airing now. Hearing it in that room, these guys playing this thing and trying to figure out how to play this song was mind-blowing. It's so inspiring to know there's so much more to it than you ever thought, and it just opened another door. But when people find faith because they need to, in terms of just filling a void to feel better without actually being better, that's when it becomes... A crutch, much like you know, drugs and alcohol do. Man, I don't have all the time in the world here. If I want to be a professional bluegrass musician, I felt like I had to take a very like strategic approach, just trying to get rid of the barriers and, and figure out what those barriers were. The feelings still come, and I have to reckon with that, but I think I have better ways of moving forward and not being stuck, which I think was the killer for me. Catch all that and so much more on the new season of Inside the Musician's Brain.